0: Thank you so much, Pastor Weary. What a blessing, <laughs> Pastor Weary. I'm thinking of, of Pete down here. Good night. I had an early morning. Thank you. I should say Pastor Weary because you are Pastor Weary. Sometimes. Sometimes. You <laughs> could have met her too. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I saw Pete and then I saw so Pastor Jones. Um, I should remember the name Jones. I mean, that, that is one that's easy to remember. What a wonderful joy it is to be here this morning and uh, to hear and meet Pastor Crabb. And I know that Pastor Miller is watching by live stream. And uh, thank you, Pastor Miller, for your faithful years that you've served the Lord. To be here on a celebration of 150 years is just so unique. Number one, there are not many churches that are 150 years old. Number two, there are not many churches that are 150 years old that are still faithful to God's Word. So it is a wonderful day to glorify our God and to rejoice and to be happy in Him. So thank you so very, very much. Your pastor and I have a lot of things in common. Uh, One is uh, his name, Jones. My mother's maiden name was Jones. Jones. Uh, We are both in a position of of leading uh, an organization, a church, in my case an institution, a school that is much older than we are, and uh, we have followed in the footsteps of many wonderful people who have a great history and a great foundation, but that's not sufficient for tomorrow. We need to have a great future, and so it is a joy just to be here to celebrate What the Lord has done, and I believe what the Lord is going to do. Uh, When I walked into this building, of course I've been here uh, before, but I've not been here since you've renovated. And so I turned to my son, who's my youngest of four children. I have four children who range in age from 34 years old down to 20. And that's my son Michael. Son, stand up, let him see how handsome you are. So anyway, and. uh, By the way, he shaved his head without his mother's permission, if you really want to know the truth, but since he's working in the hot summer in South Carolina, it makes life a little easier. Um, but it's, uh, we came here five years ago in 2012, and uh, I walked in the building and I said, yes, this is that cool old church, and now that you've remodeled it, it's like double Cool. And uh, this is just a wonderful blessing. And then those of you that are Bob Jones University graduates, I'm so glad to see many of you here this morning. Bob Jones University was founded in 1927 by an evangelist named Bob Jones. He started the school for two reasons. Number one, because he had a son that he wanted his son to be able to have a higher education that was rooted in biblical authority. Secondly, he wanted a school that would be, if I could say it this way, somewhat of a protection because he was concerned about the negative influence of the secular and liberal education of the 1920s in the United States of America. And so he wanted a school that would be, if I could say it this way, stand for the fundamentals of the Christian faith and then if you could say develop that in the lives of the students. And so now, 90 years later, we just finished our 90th anniversary with over 40,000 graduates. Bob Jones University is doing today the same thing that it did when it was started 90 years ago, just like your church is doing today. But we're a little bit different. As my daughters remind me, Dad, Bob Jones University was started in the time period of Downton Abbey if that helps any of you. So we're a little bit different than that time period and that time frame. But we have three core things that we have not changed. Number one, our spiritual passion. A a passion that is built on the authority of the Bible. We believe the Bible is God's word. And it's built on an environment that nurtures godliness in the life of students, especially through discipleship, and personal evangelism. Secondly, it's a school that's been built on academic excellence, preparing people to go out and successfully serve God and accomplish His will in this world. And then thirdly, it's a school that's been built on relational integrity. And by that I mean it's a school that is both morally and physically safe, And then it's a school that is built on mentoring relationships where peer-on-peer and also mentor-teacher-on-peer relationships that's built on really the biblical concept of love. That's really the atmosphere that you find at Bob Jones University. If you've never been there, I would like to encourage you to come and visit us sometime in Greenville, South Carolina. So thank you, Pastor, for the invitation to celebrate, rejoice, and what God has done, and then what God is going to do. And with that in mind, I'd like to invite your attention this morning to the 125th Psalm that I would like us to look at this morning. Psalm 125, and we will take our time to work through this wonderful Psalm to encourage and strengthen our heart that our God is our unshakable foundation. We read this morning in verse 1 these words, They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be removed, but abideth forever. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people, from henceforth even forever." For the rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous, lest the righteous put forth their hands unto iniquity. Do good, O Lord, unto those that be good, and to them that are upright in their hearts. As for such as turn aside unto their crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them forth with the workers of iniquity. But peace shall be upon Israel. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his most precious word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for this wonderful day of celebration. We acknowledge that thou art the Lord alone. You have made heaven and earth. You have brought forth your truth. Thank you, God, for blessing this place now for 100 years and 50 years and during this time O oh lord how you have blessed with the propagation of your gospel and the salvation of souls and the upbuilding and the strengthening of the church thank you for those that have come through these doors and have now gone out into the world to serve you and lord as you have blessed in the past O God, we pray that you will extra-bless in the future. Pour out, Lord, your Spirit upon this place in a greater measure. Protect the church from sin and error. Keep your people in the palm of your hand. And bless, O Lord, your pastors who lead the flock and shepherd the children of God. May this day continue to ring in our hearts for years to come as we rejoice in you as our unshakable foundation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. For 29 years, I traveled in the ministry of full-time evangelism. During that time, it was our privilege to have our family travel with us. Our kids grew up on the road during that time we lived in what is known as a fifth wheel trailer so our kids had been trailer rats for a long time (laughs) and throughout those years it was normal for us to have the pastor and his family come over to our trailer for fellowship after one of our evening services And it was also quite normal for my wife to put a load of wash into the washing machine right before the pastor's family comes over for fellowship. Now, the reason she did that is because these trailers have these really little, uh, almost play toy washing machines, and when you have four children and two adults, it runs all the time. So my wife always has the washing machine going. Well inevitably the washing machine would get to the spin cycle and when it did it would always shake the trailer now it was normal for us but for the visiting pastor and his family it felt like an earthquake and so therefore you could see the fear in their faces they're sitting on their on the couch and the whole trailer is shaking And we constantly had to reassure them that it was only a washing machine and they were quite secure. In the life of every believer, and I could say this, in the life of every ministry, there will be times and there will be cycles where things will be shaken up. And that's why Psalm 125 was written it was written for those who are going through those times and they have to learn and in some cases relearn the truth that God is our unshakable foundation. So as we look at this psalm this morning, I want us to begin with just a little background to help you understand it in a more clear way. Psalm 125 is the sixth psalm of a set of 15 psalms that begin in Psalm 120 and they end in Psalm 134. And you know what they are called because under the psalm itself, the number of the psalm is a title. What does your Bible have it saying? Mine says a song of what? Of degrees or a song of ascent. Now the Song of Degrees or the Song of Ascent tips off to us what the purpose of these psalms were. And that is these were songs, Jewish songs, that were designed specifically for a purpose. And that is they were to be sung by Jewish pilgrims who were making one of their three annual trips up to Jerusalem for their religious festivals or what we call their feasts those feasts were called Passover Pentecost and Tabernacles and every Jewish male was required by the Old Testament law to go to the city of Jerusalem three times a year For these annual festivals so these would obviously be songs that Jesus and his family would have sung on the long trip from Nazareth up to Jerusalem that was an 85 mile trip that it would take in at least a week to walk and so they would sing as they traveled in caravans as groups together they would sing these psalms now you and I do the same thing When I would travel down the highway, my wife, when my kids were little, would take the little girls and put them on her knee, and they would sing certain songs. You know why? Because long trips are very boring. And so to pass the time away, you would sing these songs, or you would put in a CD player. Now, today, what do parents do? They show DVDs. But the point of the matter is these were, song, these were songs that were sung during their journey. But they were more than to deal with the problem of boredom. Because these songs were written to teach lessons of faith. They were teaching them lessons as they take life's long journey. Because everything that God does in the physical realm is to teach us a lesson in the spiritual realm. And that is, these believers were learning how to face life's experiences as they learned to live by faith. So each one of these psalms has a spiritual lesson that we are to learn as we are on the road that's bound for the promised land. So what then is the lesson of Psalm 125? Well, let's go back and we're going to do two things this morning. First of all, we're going to look at what is it that brought this psalm about and then what's the lesson that we learned from it. What is it? What is the setting of the psalm? We can put it that way. And it appears like, according to verse 3, that believers were experiencing enemy occupation in their land. Look and notice what he says in verse 3. For the rod of the wicked, the rod of the wicked is their rulership, their scepter. The rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous, lest the righteous put forth their hands unto iniquity. Now I think most of you that know your Bible know that the Jewish people experienced enemy occupation throughout many times in their history in other words instead of Jews leading the kings of Israel they would be dominated by a foreign nation so we know the great invasion for example of the Babylonians in 586 BC and later they were under the dominant control of the Persians and if you know the history then the Greeks And in the days of Jesus Christ, who was the dominating force in the land of Israel? The Jews were not the rulers, the Romans were. So the point of the matter is, God's people had lived under enemy occupation. And it has been suggested that this psalm... Was written during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. That's after the Jews had been deported into Babylon, and then they came back to the land of Israel to rebuild the walls of the city and to rebuild the temple, and if you could say it this way, start all over, and they were under the control of the Persians. Now, what is important for you to understand is that from the Jewish perspective and from the biblical perspective, enemy occupation was a spiritual disaster. The reason why the enemy occupied or were occupying the land was because that they had been in disobedience to God and it was a judgment for their sin. The land that the Jewish people lived in, the land of Israel, was originally a gift from God. And if a kingdom of evil conquered the land, it is because the people were walking in disobedience to God. We must always remember that you cannot disobey God and get away with it. And so the scepter or the rule of wickedness was now dominating the nation And these wicked rulers threatened to ruin the people of God. And how did they do that? Go back again and look at verse 3. For the rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous, lest the righteous put forth their hands unto iniquity. What was the threat of the dominating uh, rulers that were ruling the land? It wasn't so much their physical rule but it was their, if I could say it this way, their sinful influence. Think of it. The Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans. What would be the greatest threat? It wasn't so much physical. It was more mental. It was their influence of their Ungodliness, their idolatry, their immorality, their corruption. The ruin of the people of God is never physical, it's always spiritual and moral. And the concern, of course of the people of god or if you could say it the their overriding fear is that the people of god would be ruined because of the corruption and the iniquity of those sinful leaders now let me just stop here and say what is the greatest fear of christian parents what should be the greatest fear i have four kids i have now two grandchildren the greatest fear I had of raising my children was not, I mean, of course, sure, I had a fear physically that they would be hurt, but I had much more of a fear of the negative, sinful influence on my children and how that would affect and perhaps and potentially corrupt their character. Now, let me ask you a question Are you a Christian parent? Do you have any concern about your children? And the negative influence of the world that we're living in in 2017, I live with over 2,500 college students. 2,500. Do you know what's the biggest threat on the campus of Bob Jones University? It's not something that's physical, that, some, that our students could be physically hurt. It's an extremely safe place. It's always the negative influence, the corrupting influence of the world and the society in which we live in, and how that, that could dominate them and hurt them. That's the point of Psalm 125. It is the concern, it is the fear of a group of godly people who could be dominated and influenced by corrupt society. Now I look around this room and I see a few gray hairs. So that means you have grandchildren. How many of you have concern about your grandchildren's faith and their morals and their influence? the lesson that we find here in this psalm is rooted in this fear so this fear was this this psalm excuse me was called a psalm of lament and a lament was an expression of complaint or sorrow or disappointment or regret One writer said it this way, the psalmist's complaint is against a situation that, unless checked, could lead to what we call moral nihilism. That is a rejection of religious and moral principles, a turning away from God and a turning to sin. So it was a psalm of lament, but it wasn't a negative song. It was also a psalm of confidence. And that is, the point of the writer is this, when things don't look good, it's very easy to become negative and pessimistic, but the psalm here and the tone that it brings forth is not a negative tone, but it is a positive tone. It is not a tone of defeat, it is a tone of triumph. And it reveals a society of spiritual leaders who are lifting up the hearts of the people that in these threatening and these troubling times, in this setting that we find ourselves often in, that God is the one that we can turn to who is an unshakable foundation. In Him we can trust. In Him we can rely on. In Him we can place our confidence. So... What is the overall then lesson of the psalm? And what is God trying to teach us? And I think here of 150 years of a church that has stayed stable. What's the basis of your stability? Has it been perfect leadership? Has it been that you've had all the money that you need? What is the stability for the people of God? It always comes through an unshakable foundation. When the weakest saint exercises the simplest faith in God, he becomes anchored to an immovable mountain of stability because the psalmist is telling us God is our unshakable foundation. And notice what he says about God in verse 1. He says, God is our stability. They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be removed but abideth forever. What is Mount Zion? It's the mountain on which the city of Jerusalem has been built. Have you ever been there? It's been my privilege to go to Israel many, many times. And every time I go there, guess what? Jerusalem is still there. It's still there. The city of Jerusalem has been conquered time after time after time. The nation of Israel has been threatened by how many different nations? And yet, it still stands there today. It is an immovable foundation. It is a solid rock. When you and I stand on the solid rock, then we become rock solid. God is beneath us to support us. The Lord is under us. That's what He is saying. When you go to the city of Jerusalem and you see Mount Zion on which that city has been built, what God is saying is that I am your firm foundation. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your rest in His excellent word. Every church will stay solid when it stands on the Word of God and stands true to it and stands faithful to it, that we build on the rock. When I went to Bob Jones University and I began there three years ago, it became very, very clear to me in a very short period of time that the future of the school was built on one key event. If you take this event away, it will die. And do you know what that event is? It's what we call chapel. Four out of a five-day week, we meet every day for what we call chapel. Do you know what we do during chapel? We preach the Bible. And all of the faculty and all of the staff and all of the students are there And day after day, week after week, month after month, we bring to the student body the very glue that holds us together. And what is that? That is a commitment to the authority of the scriptures. The future and the stability of any church is built on the foundation of the word of God. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, you are this little rock. And upon the rock, that is Jesus Christ, I'm going to build my church. Jesus is the rock of ages and believers are to stand solid on that rock. And that is the source of our stability, both in life and in death. A couple of summers ago, I had a pastor friend of mine that I had ministered with on a number of occasions call me up. He said, Steve, I wanted to call you up and tell you I'm dying. That was an odd phone call. He pastored a church down in Knoxville, Tennessee. His name was Pastor Tom Craig. And Tom and I had been friends ever since he was in his early 20s. He said, Steve, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. At the end of that week, I drove to Knoxville and I preached for him on that Sunday morning. And you just have to know Tom. Tom was such an effervescent, lively, kind of an electric guy, loved people, loved his church, served his people. Pancreatic cancer is deadly. It's like being bit by King Cobra. You're not going to survive it. I asked Tom, I said, Tom, have you ever preached at Bob Jones University? He said, I never preached there. I looked up the date. I said, September 27th, I want you in chapel. Unfortunately, he never made it. He died in August. So I preached there that weekend, and that was the last time I saw him before I'll see him in heaven. And about two weeks before he died, we were still texting. And I texted him, and I said to him, I said, Tom, I just want you to know that it has been a joy to be able to serve together with you in the gospel ministry. And I preached in his church many times, held meetings there. People were saved there. And I want you to know how much I respect you and love you because you're going home to meet the Lord. And then I wrote a little line to him that was from a song that I occasionally listened to. And, uh, you know, it, it, was a, it, was an old, uh, it was an old bluegrass tune. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but there will be bluegrass in heaven. Other stuff won't be there, but I think bluegrass is going to make it. And in the song is a little phrase that I've always really enjoyed. It says, I'm not holding on to Jesus, but he's holding on to me. You know, when you're facing death's door within a few weeks, it's not about your faithfulness, it's about his faithfulness. Let me tell you something, folks. God has made a promise to his people. And that promise is unmoving. God is our unshakable foundation for both life and death. But notice not only is God our stability, but he says God is our security. Look at verse 2. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people from henceforth even forever. Jerusalem was secure because it was the Lord that was surrounding them and it's very interesting the image that God sets forth here not only is God an unmovable unshakable foundation like Mount Zion but as the mountains are around Jerusalem the Lord is round about his own people Now, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, one of the things you notice is Jerusalem is built on a mountain, but it's not the tallest mountain, it's actually the shortest mountain, because all of the other mountains that surround it, for example, Mount of Olives, they're higher than the city of Jerusalem. If you could say it this way, the city of Jerusalem is set in a saucer of hills. It's like the bottom of the coffee cup and the top of the coffee cup or the other hills surrounding it, that's Jerusalem. Now, be honest with you, that's a not very a very safe place. If I were in a city and all the hills around me were higher and all the enemies surrounded me on top of that mountain looking down, what do you think that they can do? I mean, they just hurl things down and just, you know, just pummel you with all kinds of things. I was in Jerusalem a number of years ago. My daughter, Rebecca, my oldest daughter, has... She studied there for three years. She got a master's degree there. Fact fact, she's there now working on a doctor's degree. And we went to the old city of David, and we were standing there, and she said, Dad, look, look at the, look at the mountains all around us. She said, Notice, she said, they're all higher than Jerusalem. And I looked up and I went, Yeah, they really are. And she went, I said, What does that mean? She said, Dad, look at this. God put his people not in a place of security he put his people in a place of vulnerability because when your enemy's up there and they can fire down on you what can you do and then she looked at me she said dad that's the way god always works He doesn't put his people in a place where they feel strong. He puts his people in a place where they feel weak. Not where they feel like they can't be conquered, but in a place where they feel very vulnerable. Why? So they'll learn to trust the Lord. The Lord is our security. The Lord is the one who is round about his people from henceforth, even forever. Do you remember when Elisha was in the city of Dothan with his servant? And Ben Hadad, the king of Syria, marched his army to the city and he surrounded it in the the night? What happened? At daybreak, Elisha's servant goes out from the gates to draw water, and there he sees the enemy's soldiers, and he's terrified. He runs back into the city, and he says to Elisha, Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? And the prophet replied, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. What did God do? He opened the eyes of his servant, and what did the servant see? He saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire. The angels of the Lord had encamped around about those that fear him. If we could see the real world, the spiritual world, we would see the Lord protecting and securing his people. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble how many of you have gone through experiences in your life where you were put in a place of vulnerability and you cried out to the Lord and God intervened for you God is in the midst of her she shall not be moved security is clear the rule of the wicked shall not prevail I don't know how many times I've gone out on the back porch of my house And I raised my hands to God and there was no one there because my house was in the woods. And I began to cry out to God for my children. That God, you would protect them. Because you know what, even as a parent, no matter how hard you try, God has to do a work for you. God is for us because God is under us and God is around us. God is our stability. God is our security. And then finally, notice God is our serenity. Notice what he tells us here in verse 4. He says, Do good, O Lord, unto those that be good, and to them that are upright in their hearts, As for such as turn aside unto their crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them forth with the workers of iniquity, but peace shall be upon Israel. That little phrase, do good, O Lord, the word good to a Jew always referred to one who kept Torah or they obeyed the law. I believe there's a very simple but profound truth here, and that is in a confusing age as a believer, Our greatest security is found in the simplicity of our obedience. Let me put it this way. God, we're just going to trust you and I'm just going to obey you. I don't understand. I'm not sure what to do. I don't know, Lord, how to fix this. I don't know, Lord, how to make this the way it ought to do. But God, what I do know is I'm going to trust you and I'm going to obey you. You know, every time we're put in a place of a threat, we're being tested in our faith if we're going to obey God or are we going to disobey God. Are we going to trust him or are we going to turn away from him? And for the believer... His serenity is found in the Lord's presence and our simple trust and obedience to him. And notice how the psalmist close. He closes with a priestly blessing. He says, but peace shall be upon Israel. The word for peace is the word shalom. Isn't that a beautiful word, shalom? Do you know what the word shalom means? It's not peace in the sense of the cessation of conflict. It's the idea of stability or wholeness. It's like when somebody says to us, how you doing? And you say, I'm fine. It means everything's okay. I feel good. I may not look good, but I feel good. And everything's okay. And what he's saying is this, that God gives his shalom, his wholeness to those who are willing to trust him. So let me ask you a question. What difficulties are you facing this morning? What disturbing circumstances are threatening your shalom? What demanding challenges? What threatening problems? Or what imminent crisis are you in where you need God's help? The hardest thing I've ever done in my life, Brother Pete, was to say yes when the chairman of the board of Bob Jones University asked me if I would come. It's the hardest job I've ever had. I feel like I have a crisis every hour. You know? It's just flat hard. I'm not complaining. But you know what I have learned? (laughs) That God gives shalom. God, I don't know what else to do but to trust you and obey you. And God gives his peace because he's our unshakable foundation. I picked up a book a few years ago I thought was interesting. It was written by a man named Thomas Cahill, he, was a national, he wrote a national bestseller. The name of the book was How the Irish Saved Civilization. I thought that was an interesting title because I didn't know the Irish saved anything. <laughs> and he wrote about a man named St. Patrick. You ever heard of him? Patrick was a young Roman who brought Christianity to Ireland. Patrick had been captured in England by a group of Irish pirates when he was only 16 years old. They put him to work as a slave for an Irish chieftain. After six years of being in slavery, he escaped. He returned back to his family. But it was during that time that he became a Christian. And after he went back to his family, he sensed a call of God to go back to Ireland And to be a missionary. He faced nearly an insurmountable task because, in that day, behind him lay the collapsing ruin of Roman civilization, the literal fall of Rome. Before him were the fierce and wild natives of Ireland. And Patrick had no outward security, but he persevered in his calling. And he died at last at the age of 76 years old. In his 30 years of ministry, Patrick changed Ireland so thoroughly that as Thomas Cahill reports in his study, as the Roman lands were going from peace to chaos, the land of Ireland was rushing even more rapidly from chaos to peace. He said instead of viewing the collapse of his own culture as an unmitigated tragedy, Patrick seized it as an unprecedented opportunity to propagate Christ's gospel. So where did he find the strength in his very trying times? Well, he gives an answer in a surviving prayer known as St. Patrick's Breastplate what protected him. And I close this morning with his prayer. He said, I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's host to save me from snares of devils, from temptations of vices, and from everyone who shall wish me ill. Christ to shield me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that there may come to be abundance of reward. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I rise up. I arise today through the mighty strength of Jesus Christ. That, my friend, is a foundation that even hell can't shake. That's your future. And may God help you to continue in that unshakable foundation. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that we have in Christ an unshakable foundation Father, bless this church. Bless these good people. Lord, may the church continue to prosper. And may God, you continue to bless this ministry as they continue to operate in simple obedience to your word. We thank you for the unchanging gospel. We thank you that is still saving souls And we pray, Lord, that you'll bless the outreach of this ministry. Help them to see people come to saving faith. And to those who are saved, that they come to a sanctifying progress in the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for keeping us. And now, Lord, continue to bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.